0: I'm Pastor Jay, and it is my privilege to invite you to turn your attention to your New Testament, to the back, the passage that Pastor Doug read, First Peter chapter 3. Becky and I love the Lord's Day. We love every new Sabbath. This morning we got up and put on the one and only CD uh, that I have ever sung on, except uh, don't get too impressed. It was with 50,000 other people. So, you really can't hear me. It was recorded at Folsom Stadium out in Boulder, Colorado for Promise Keepers. And there were 50,000 of us. And it was a very defining event in my life. And I remember especially James Dobson and Bill McCartney, Greg Laurie, and others who really challenged us to be men who keep their promises. I'm going to tie that a little bit in later here, but it ties in this morning. So, we want to wish you a happy Mother's Day. Whether it is an encouraging day for you, or we know for many a difficult day, God has instituted the institution of motherhood. And it's not always easy, but it is still an institution God ordained. And I don't typically preach on a topic on it. I plan my sermons quite a ways in advance. This happened to fall on Mother's Day. It's a perfect tie-in. And so we're calling this Marriage 101, and we're going to be talking about marriage this morning. Whether you're currently married, formerly married, or yet to be married, this has great relevance for the entire church of Christ to know what God has to say on this very important institution of marriage. Uh, Dr. Mark Regeneres, who uh, wrote a book a couple years ago, he's a professor of sociology at the uh, University of Texas, and he wrote a book published by Oxford Press entitled The Future of Christian Marriage. And it drew on hundreds and hundreds of interviews of young adults who were not yet married who were professing whatever that quite means. They're professing Christians from basically seven different countries. The United States, Mexico, Spain, Poland, Russia, Nigeria, and Lebanon. And through the course of hundreds of these interviews, obviously many of them through translation, a couple of his findings were very interesting. One, he said that marriage clearly is declining, especially in Western cultures, and keeps evolving. Secondly, that the age of marriage, uh, or marriage before the age of 30, is declining significantly. People are waiting longer and longer. And he said the reason for that really is twofold. One, cohabitation, living together prior to marriage. Secondly, careers that are eclipsing marriage. He wrote, quote, living together, meaning before marriage, has become part of the architecture of Western relationship systems. And his conclusion is very interesting. He said, marriage is now viewed more as an endgame, a capstone rather than a foundation. Historically, it was viewed as the foundation for where a couple begins life together, and then you build on that. Now he said it's viewed more as an end-game, a capstone, something you do towards the end. And he said, the results are that marriage are less, is less stable than it once was. And secondly, that we are seeing divorce leading to an epidemic of anxiety in many kids and young people. That is a perfect segue into First Peter this morning. This is a section of Scripture that has parallel texts, by the way, in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 that talk about marriage. And here we have some very clear instructions from God's Word. This is God's view of marriage this morning. I don't know where you are personally in your walk with Christ or where you're at in your spiritual journey or your worldview, but without apology, because we are a Christian church, we are committed to the authority And the inerrancy and infallibility of the scriptures. And so without apology, we say, what does God have to say? Or we ask that question. What does the text say? What does God say on this subject? And so that is why we're looking at it. I would say right now in our cultural history as a nation, this is a topic that could not be more timely because of the moral ferocity and velocity of the LGBTQ revolution that is pretty much steamrolling every other conversation going on in our culture right now. And the church especially should be the one place with a very clear word, a compassionate, kind word, but a very clear word on what does God have to say about marriage and the family. Peter addresses these in this section, chapter 3, 1 Peter, verses 1 to 7. And he is showing us two very important things. First, he'll talk about God's will for wives and then he will show us God's will for husbands. We're also going to be dipping a bit into Ephesians 5, which is almost an exact parallel text written by the Apostle Paul instead of Peter. And there you might note, whereas Peter spends most of his ink on God's will for wives and one verse for husband, Paul flips it the other way, spends most of his time on husbands, less on wives. So we're going to put these together this morning and go back and forth a little bit. So first of all, God's will for wives. And before I dive in, because of where we're at in our cultural conversation, I just want to do a couple preliminaries up front. Any discussion of marriage and the family and relationships in the home has to begin with God's definition of marriage. And let's be honest, there is only one definition of marriage that counts in the universe. And it's God's definition of marriage. Now, when I say that, you you have to keep adding more and more qualifiers because of where we are at in Western culture. Where I preached on this years ago in ministry, I could just say, God, view of marriage, and everyone kind of knew what I was talking about. Today, you have to be more and more clear. God's definition of marriage, coming from the book of Genesis, which we believe is historic, literal, and inspired by God, is for one man... One biologically born male, (laughs) you've got to keep adding qualifiers, who is married in covenant marriage to one biologically born female. There's probably more qualifiers that we will have to keep adding to that because of where our culture keeps evolving and shifting to. But the Bible is clear that God created marriage to be one biologically born male who is in a covenant marital relationship with one who is biologically born female. You have to remember, and a lot of us forget, that same-sex marriage only became legal in 2001 anywhere on this planet. That is a blip on the radar screen in world history. A blip. It's not very long. That doesn't mean that homosexual relationships don't go way back. They do. But no culture, including ancient Greece or Rome, Ever legalized homosexual marriage, or sanctioned it like Western culture has? Same-sex marriage only goes back to 2004 in America, when Massachusetts became the first state. It's not very old. I mean, these—it is incredibly recent in world history, and we forget that much of the time. Just a few months ago, in December, past uh, not Pastor uh, President Biden. President Biden signed an act. I don't know if you followed this or not. The Respect for Marriage Act he signed. Sounds good on the surface. The problem with the Respect for Marriage Act is that it's anything but respect for God's definition of marriage. One of the main goals of the Respect for Marriage Act that President Biden signed was to codify same-sex marriage and repeal the Defense of Marriage Act Back from 1996, the Defense of Marriage Act, passed overwhelmingly by Congress, limited marriage to one man and one woman. The Respect for Marriage Act, just signed again a few months ago by President Biden, now requires the U.S. federal government to recognize the validity of same-sex marriage. That's why history is so important to take a step back and look what's going on. That means that in less than 30 years, Our Congress has done a complete flip-flop and done a 180. And ladies and gentlemen, as you know, young people, something can't be true here and then not true over here if it's a moral issue. It does morality does not shift decade to decade. It's either wrong or it's right. The Bible is extremely binary. I have 20 somethings and 30 somethings who come to me at times and say, I don't like your preaching. And I smile and I give him a hug and it's like, why not? You're too black and white. Like, well, the Bible's sort of black and white and I'm just the messenger. Your problem is really not with me, it's with Scripture. Scripture is emphatically binary and God is very binary on this issue. Morality doesn't shift and move and evolve along with the culture. And so I want to lay that as our groundwork this morning, how recent Much of this conversation is. If you're here and you're a young person, meaning you're under 50, look at, remember where we're at in the cultural conversation and how new all of these developments are. And let us go back and say, what did God intend? What is His design? What are His blueprints? And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Even if you're uncomfortable with this, I would ask you to listen and hear what God says. So, with that, that brings us to Peter's first topic God's will for wives. And here he's going to tell us that God's will for wives, his primary will for wives, is that of submission to their husbands. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, meaning they're not saved, they're not true Christians, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives. So that's a very key piece we'll come back to. That they might be won over by your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Please note it doesn't condemn these things. The Bible doesn't condemn this. It's just saying that is not where the focus should be for beauty. Rather, verse 4, it should be that of your inner self. And the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah. Now we're going back to Genesis. Who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. All right, so let's go where angels fear to tread. And that is, what is the role of a wife? And the role of a wife, according to God, is submission to her husband. Here's what a lot of people don't understand that the word submission is a word of strength. It's a word of strength. It's a very important word. And it's because of this that he talks about a gentle and quiet spirit. That has nothing to do with personality, that has nothing to do with introverts or extroverts. Or personality types, you can be very outgoing, you can be very quiet. That's a different issue from what God calls a wife to of having a gentle and quiet spirit. A very different vision, by the way, of a wife and a woman than the world. I was watching the coronation concert. Becky and I were this last week, just a bit. Saw Katy Perry's song, Roar, if you know her song. I am a champion. You're going to hear me roar louder than a lion. And the song goes on and on and on. That's the world's vision of this process. The Bible's vision is submission, but it's a word of strength, not of weakness. It comes from a Greek term. Some of you know the New Testament was written in Greek. It comes from a Greek term that means submission to, and it actually comes from, a, it's kind of a military term, submission or rank of authority. I want to go back to, I told you Ephesians Let's turn back there because Paul has almost identical wording, a little different angle. Interesting, both Paul and Peter are writing primarily to Gentile converts in what is today Turkey. So Peter's writing to converts, called it Asia Minor back then, who are Gentile converts in what is today Western Turkey, very pagan area. Paul is writing largely to Gentile converts in what is today Western Turkey, which was one of the largest cities in the world at that time, Ephesus. A massive, massive metropolis in that day. Ephesus, the western side of Turkey. And there was a new church there. And they are living in a very hostile culture. More openly hostile to the gospel than American culture. And yet, Paul delivers these instructions under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 24. Writing... To husbands and wives in that very large city of Ephesus, a very decadent, dark, spiritually dark culture, he wrote these words. Verse 22, chapter 5, Ephesians. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. If you look at verse 23, the Apostle Paul explains the reason for submission it has to do with the headship. That's a good word. The headship of the husband. The Greek word Paul uses for head here was used widely in secular Greek literature. I've actually seen a New Testament professor, very top drawer New Testament professor, who did a study of the Greek word kephle in first century Greek. And it was a widely used word. And there was almost unanimous uh, agreement that the word means one who's under the authority of somebody. And Peter is telling us the husband is the head of the wife. And Peter, if you go back to chapter 3 for just a minute of Peter, he's very clear that this has nothing to do with whether the husband's a Christian or not. Peter is emphatically clear. Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, wives in the same way submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. So this has nothing to do with, well, my husband's not a Christian, so I don't need to submit. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible is very clear. This applies to Christian husband, non-Christian husband. Peter couldn't be clearer. It's been very interesting to watch the theological temperature of this whole conversation over the last couple decades. There is a small subgroup of those that identify as evangelical feminist in our culture, and there's a very few in that group who identify as evangelical feminist theologians. And one of the things they have tried to argue is that the different roles of husband as head and wife as submitting to only entered the narrative after sin entered the world. In other words, before sin, they argued. This is their argument. Before sin entered the world, wives were not called to submit to their husbands. Problem is, Genesis is very clear that's not true. Genesis is very clear the role differences in marriage. Hear this existed before sin entered the world. That's a biblical worldview. And there's a couple very clear indications of this in the book of Genesis. Let me give you four. One, Adam was created first, then Eve. Two, Adam, this was a big one, Adam named Eve, which was a clear sign of his authority over her. 3 Adam not Eve represented the human race so even though Eve technically committed the first sin Adam gets the blame why because he was the head of that family and in the new testament it's Adam who takes the hit not Eve because he is her head and another clear indication from Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 Eve is called a helper For Adam. Now, the problem, I looked at a number of English translations this week on the word helper, and almost every English translation I could find, except for the King James, translates this word as helper. The problem with that is not a very strong word. Sounds like a scullery maid or somebody that's a servant or something. That's not the word. The Hebrew word ezer is a very strong word. A lot of people don't get that. And uh, the word ezer is a combination of two root words. One of them means to rescue or to serve, and the other root word means strength. And here's something very interesting: the noun form of the word used, Ezer, in Genesis two eighteen, is used elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible almost exclusively of God. It is a very strong word, a helpmate an equal helpmate. That means, there's a big fancy word, that ontologically in God's order, that means as things are in their being, God created a wife to be completely equal and a helpmate to her husband, even though the husband is the head of the wife when it comes to authority. So just to be clear, what submission is not has nothing to do with a wife's ontological inferiority to a husband at any level. It has to do with the fact of how authority operates in creation it's obvious to all of us we look around God created the world to operate with authority structures authority structures don't say anything about who's a better person it has to do with the order of how things are to operate let me say one other thing here to bottom line this and again this is where history is so important to step back and look at a bigger picture here young people hear this bottom line is this, the Judeo-Christian heritage coming right out of the scriptures, the Hebrew Bible and the Christian scriptures, the Judeo-Christian heritage is hands down easily the most female affirming worldview on the planet, always has been and still is due to the Bible's influence women are better treated in western culture historically than any other culture in the world if you've traveled at all and had the privilege to move around a little bit, you have seen that. Becky and I have seen that over and over. This all goes back to Genesis, and it all goes back to Moses, and it all goes back to Jesus. Jesus, in his own ministry, elevated women to a status absolutely unheard of in Greco-Roman culture. He elevated women to a status unheard of in the world religions. Unheard of, even to this day, in Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism, you do not see the respect for women that was displayed by Jesus in the New Testament. And so at the core, submission means respect for the authority that God has placed in the husband. It's a God-given design. You can fight it. You can resist it. But you will never have a joyful marriage if you're not submitting. You might say, well, my husband's not worth submitting to. It's not true. Here it says, even if he's an unbeliever, it's still the authority structures. That's the point. It's not so much the person in that role, it's that God has put the authority structures there. It's just how it works. And wives who joyfully, not just grudgingly, but joyfully submit to that and work on that are going to work towards joy. And it means God placed, here's what it means. I'm going to say this to guys, gentlemen. It means God has put in a wife A deep desire. Gentlemen, let me say this again because I know guys. Gentlemen. Thank you. Listening, not on your phones, not zoning out. Gentlemen, it means that God has put in our wives a deep desire to be nurtured, protected, and led. And loved. I remember going back to Promise Keepers. James Dobson got up to 50,000 of us men, and he, I, rem, I don't remember a lot of what he said, but I remember towards the end, he said, you guys are going home shortly. He said, I want you to remember something very important. Your wife, if you're married, is desperate for you to come home and lead, and to love her, and to be her shield. And he said, there's way too many of you who are passive, passive nice guys, <laughs> Passive nice guys who are not leading their children, not discipling their kids, not evangelizing their kids, and not leading and shepherding their wives. And he gave it to us. And I remember the impression that made. It really pierced me. All right. Time to go on to husbands. Verse 7. And we're going to, again, we're going to go back and forth a little bit with Ephesians. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 Peter says this to husbands very clear instructions here husbands in the same way be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner that's referring to the biology thing that refers to just physically women are weaker but it has nothing to do has nothing to do with anything else and heirs there's the ontological part completely equal and heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. We will come back to that warning in just a couple minutes. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 5 and look at Paul's more extended command to husbands. Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to read Paul's extended wording here from verses 25 through verse 31. If you're, re- if you're not yet married, you're a younger person, I really want you to listen to this. I want your attention. Here is the key to a godly, joy-filled, satisfying marriage. That's what this is. That's why if we resist this and go, I don't like that, and we bristle at it, we're just working against our own joy and our own happiness. Pure and simple. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, Paul's going to root all of this in The relationship between Christ and his church. I'll come back to that in a second. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Verse 28. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And so obviously the converse is also true. Any, any husband not loving, remember love is a verb. Any husband not treating his wife well doesn't love himself. He hates himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their own body as Christ does the church. For We are members of his body for this reason. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Where does that come from? Genesis. So all goes back to Genesis. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. Paul keeps going back and forth. Christ and church, husband and wife. Husband wife, Christ and church. However, verse 33, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So, what is a wife's role? Unconditional respect. What is a husband's role? Unconditional love. Husbands are never told to submit to their wives. They are told to cherish them and love them unconditionally. Husband is commanded to love his bride. How? What's our model? As Christ loves the church. Our role as husbands is to cherish our bride and to shepherd our bride and to treasure and to honor and protect. And as Paul says, the roots of this are deeply embedded in Christ's relationship to the church. Okay, I want to take a step back again and I want to draw a, a kind of a practical implication here. <coughs> Here's, there's a bigger picture of what's going on here. And I'll say this twice. Because it could sound a little tricky, but this is exactly what Paul's arguing here in the implication. So here it is. If a husband desires for his children, if you're a husband, and you want your children to have a high view of the local church and value the local church, then your children need to have a high view of their mother. And that comes from how you treat her in front of them. So if a husband wants his children to have a high view of the local church, the picture of that is how he is treating his wife. If a wife, on the other hand, wants for her children to have a high view of the church and of Christ especially, if a mom wants her children to have a high view of Christ, they need to have a high view of their father. And that comes from how she treats him in front of them. They need to see their mother joyfully submitting to their father. Bottom line is this, and I'll put this another way. Insult a mother to her children, and you insult the church. Insult a father in front of his children, and you insult Christ. That is how closely linked the husband-wife Christ and his church analogy is. Marriage was designed to be a billboard. It's designed to be a sign and a pointer to Christ and his church. And that is why this is such a huge issue and why Paul draws us to it. The Bible tells us the husband also has one other very important role. If you look at Ephesians 5.23, we've already alluded to this. I want to drill down on a little bit deeper on it. There is the besides, so wife, unconditional respect. That's her primary job description. Husband, primary job description, unconditional love. But a husband has another very important role. Another very important role with his wife. And it's brought out in Ephesians 5.23. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. That means, as the leader of the family the shepherd of the family, that a husband is accountable to provide, protect, and lead his wife. Shepherd her. Beyond just unconditional love, this is one of the ways it's fleshed out. He is also to be the shepherd and leader of that marriage. That means a couple things. For example, you say, well, like what? That means that he ultimately is responsible that his wife is financially provided for. That they are tithing. That he is the one taking the initiative to be tithing their income to the local church. You want God's blessing on your family? The husband needs to be the one taking that initiative. That he is the one helping plan for the future. Some other things. That means the husband's responsible to make sure they're in a Bible teaching church. That they're honoring the Sabbath day and keeping it holy. That they are evangelizing and catechizing their children. And not just somehow hoping the church does it. Way too many passive nice guys just kind of hope the church does it. Whereas Deuteronomy is very clear, chapter 6, chapter 11, it is mom and dad, primarily dad is the dean of education, their job, your job, my job to make sure my kids are being evangelized, given the gospel, and making sure I am teaching them doctrine and theology and worldview issues and having those conversations and turning off the television and making sure they're having appropriate boundaries when it comes to their smartphones and social media. And then I am raising children that are respectful and obedient. That's on both moms and dads, but it's more on dads. And so I remember James Dobson out there again saying, one of the greatest problems he saw in the evangelical church as he crisscrossed America was the epidemic of passive husbands. Nice guys who sit in pews of churches and are just nice men but they're not leading, they're not shepherding, they're not taking the initiative. Warriors at work and wimps at home. And he really challenged us to step up our game. And again, so I say, gentlemen, our wives are hungry for us to be their spiritual leader and protector of our families. And they are desperate for that. So young ladies, if you're not yet married, that's something that you respectfully need to engage your boyfriend, fiancé on, as you enter and get closer to marriage. The first sin of Adam was passivity. Why do I say that? Because when Satan tempted Eve, it's very clear as you look at the text, Adam was there. And as Satan tempted Eve... What did Adam do? What did Adam say? Nothing. Nada. Niet. Nietzschevo. Nothing. Nothing. The silence of Adam. Larry Crabb has a great book on that. The sin of Adam and being silent. Finally, notice the warning. I told you we'd come back to the warning, 1 Peter 3, 7. There's no warning given to wives. There is a warning given to husbands. Husbands, in the same way, be considered as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. And here's the warning. So that nothing will hinder your prayer life. Some of us are sitting here today going, I just don't feel like my prayers are getting anywhere. One of the reasons is we might be sinning against our wives. Maybe you've been harsh. Maybe you've been abusive. First thing you need to do is repent vertically and then repent horizontally to your bride and perhaps to your children in front of your children to your wife. I want to talk about one other aspect of all of this, because this is very important when you get into male, female relationships, husbands and wives in the local church. One other aspect that's very important to understand is that the Bible's teaching on the leadership of the husband not only applies in the home, it applies in the local church. And while the New Testament, again, affirms husbands and wives, men and women, as completely equal ontologically, you know, in in, in being, it's also very clear that the husband not only is the head of wife in the home, he is to take headship and leadership in the local church. Now, we have a lot of gifted female leaders in this church. The Bible does not say women shouldn't teach in the local church. It talks about them exercising teaching and authority over men. So, you come to a verse like 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 12, here's what Paul says inspired by the Holy Spirit. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. And again, here's what he says next. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. It doesn't say she shouldn't teach in the local church. We have some very gifted female teachers in our church here. Very gifted. I'm very thankful for them. That's not what it says. It says not to do it over a male. And then Paul even gives the reason. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. It's a theological reason, not a cultural reason. Not something that was going on in Ephesus. He goes all the way back to Genesis. It says that's why headship not only applies at home, it applies in the local church. It all goes back to the headship of the husband, which Paul ties back to Genesis and the creation account. In other words, it's an issue of authority and how God's authority is to operate in the home and then be consistently mirrored in the local church. And so it's one of the reasons in our church that any of our elders, ruling elders, teaching elders, are male. That's one of the questions we often get. Are we chauvinist? We probably are. I mean, we're all sinners, we shouldn't be, but that's not why we do it. We do it because of the biblical argument. All right, what's our summons? For our summons, I want to go back to Ephesians 5, verse 33. It is the perfect summons to end this kind of a sermon. Ephesians 5, 33, and it says this, Each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So, you want to know how to have a joyful, godly marriage? Here it is. Husband, unconditionally love wife. Wife, unconditionally respect the husband. This is something Emerson Egridge calls the love and respect principle. When a wife is loving her husband and respecting him, as she's called to. When a wife is loving, but especially respecting, he wants to then reciprocate and love her. When she respects him, he wants to love her. And as he loves her, guess what she wants to do? She wants to respect him and it becomes a very healthy upward cycle unless it's going the opposite direction and it becomes a very destructive cycle. And so let us fulfill what God has called us to do. That is the blueprint for having a godly marriage.